You are now listening to the Socks and Sandals podcast. Every time an independent, a truly independent source goes into the Portland Place Bureau, we find chaos. Just one of the people like just told to my managers who like had fired me, they were like, yeah, did you see Tevin's video was on Complex? And he was like, man, dog, they sick, man. Yada, yada. And I was just like, I was laughing because it was just like, you know, bro, like, you know, God, God always got a plan. In that moment, I thought, you know what? I don't care. I'm going to sit here in the middle of this aisle in Target and talk to her and break down what is going on and why she believes that these white Barbie dolls are more valuable or should come home with us over these brown and black Barbie dolls. The Egyptian creation story is a very sexual one. Mm -hmm. And it talks of the god creating himself through a sexual act with himself. So it's a masturbatory big bang like. like I never even hire coaches when I establish a program. I always hire mentors first. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Because a mentor gets the big picture. Coach might just get basketball. I want somebody that under X's and I want somebody that's about whole life. I'm not the only podcaster out there. You're not the only marketer out there. Like there's a lot of people doing the same things. But the things that's going to separate you and I from the rest of the people is that we become our best selves and we just don't quit. So what is the gospel? What is the pure, unadulterated yes, gospel? Yes, yes, and that is what I live by, because the moment this changes is the moment I'm leaving Christianity. Okay. The pure, unadulterated gospel, and I can say it in one sentence, but I'll elaborate. For sure. Is love God and do whatever the fuck you want. Socks and Sandals podcast where society, culture, history, and religion collide, and we unapologetically discuss our worldviews. It's your guy Emmanuel. I'm back here in the studio in K Boo, and I'm back at it for another solo episode, another Hugh Knows edition of Socks and Sandals. For those that are just now tuning in and new to the show, I appreciate you for coming um, and appreciate you for listening. One thing that I have to do before I go forward, before I move forward, I have noticed an uptick of listeners from other places outside the Northwest. I've always had listeners all over the world, all over the country, but big salute to Maryland. Whoever is in Annapolis, Maryland, I see y'all. I appreciate y'all, man. Reach out to me, hit me up. Let me know who you are, how you got onto the show, who put you on or how did you find the show and, uh, and tell me what you like about it, you know, so I can know how to continue to reach more people like yourself, more of your friends and family, and just like-minded individuals there in Annapolis or any part of Maryland, um, any part of the East Coast, honestly. So shout out to Annapolis. Uh, Shout out to Rudy Hill, Australia. I see y'all, man. Shout out to all of Canada. A lot of of Canada listens over the past two months. Um, Salute to LA, Atlanta, um, all of y'all, man, everybody around the country that's tuning in to Socks and Sandals, I appreciate y'all. I love y'all. Hit me up. Yo, hit me on uh, on Twitter, uh, at SX, 
SNDLS or just search Socks and Sandals Podcast. Hit me on Instagram, Socks and Sandals Podcast, uh, or my personal Instagram. That's too many. I think I give out too many socials. Let's just keep it simple. Hit me up directly at the show pages on Twitter and on Instagram. All right. So appreciate y'all for listening once again. And so let's get into this. Who knows, man? I'm going to do another episode on our great ancestor, Brother Malcolm X Shabazz. But we know him as Malcolm X. Um, this episode is going to be another um, another talk that he had in 1963. Um, this and this is an interview at Berkeley. The last episode last week, it was based upon the questions that he had received from students when he did a speech at Berkeley. Now, I don't know if what I found here is basically the the prequel to the questions, because. Uh, the questions from last week, the last episode that he received from the students, because this question and answer session is just more like a moderator and then a, a you know a, a professor that's moderating the, the discussion, and then he has a, his his a uh, his assistant that's asking the questions, and so I'll dig into that a little bit more, and hopefully I can find out information. Or if you guys know if what you're gonna hear coming up is from the exact same session of what he answered, you know, the question and answers that he did on the last episode that I did. So um, without further ado, just a little bit more background on this scenario. So once again, this is Malcolm X being interviewed uh, at Berkeley, UC Berkeley in California, um, 1963. And it was like a general question and answer session of just like who he is, what what uh, the Nation of Islam was about, you know, trying to clear up some misconceptions and challenge Malcolm on a few things and um, all of that good stuff. So the moderator is a white guy. His name is John Leggett. He's a professor there at UC Berkeley. And then the main person that's asking questions and going back and, for, back and forth with Malcolm is his teaching assistant. His name is Herman Blake, a young black student. So without further ado, Let's get into it. Hugh knows our ancestor. Malcolm X knows. Today, in our discussion of minority groups, we have with us two guests. One is Minister Malcolm X Shabazz, one of the top leaders of the Nation of Islam, or the so-called black Muslims. And we also have Mr. Herman Blake, uh, one of the teaching assistants in the course. Uh, we will discuss today some of the, the goals and some of the strategies of the Nation of Islam. And I wonder if Mr. Blake might start it off by asking um, Mr. Shabazz a question. Now, peep the questions, man. And I'm going to play more and more of these sessions of Malcolm getting questioned and, and answering. And then I'm going to start getting into just his speeches. Um, but I always like the question and, and the dialogue and just the way that people phrase questions to Malcolm and the beautiful way of how he answers them, um, just like you guys heard last episode. But let's get back to it. Uh, Minister Malcolm, the thing that I thought might be good for starting it off is to talk about one of the most pervasive beliefs in the general society about the nation of Islam 
and that is that it is an organization dedicated to the use of violent means to attain its goals. The question I have is, how true is this, and why do you think it persists in society? Pervasive. Well, the, the Muslims who have accepted the religion of Islam and follow the religious guidance of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad have never bombed any churches, mm. have never murdered any little girls, mm. as was done in Birmingham, have never lynched anybody. And if y'all don't know what happened in Birmingham, uh, there was a church that was, that was bombed and four little girls were stuck in the basement and they did not survive. And that was one of the, uh, one of many bombings in Birmingham and at that point in time in the 60s they called it Birmingham because there were so many bombings and so many people being hurt and killed in Birmingham, Alabama. Have never at any time been guilty of initiating any aggressive acts of violence during the entire uh, 33 years or more that the Honorable Elijah Muhammad has been teaching us. 30 years, no violence, no violent occurrences whatsoever. But for whatever reason, it's the pervasive belief that they, the black Muslims, are a violent organization. How does that happen? Hmm. The charge of violence against us actually stems from the guilt complex that exists in the conscious and subconscious minds of most white people in this country. Mm. Maybe that's how it happens. They know that they've been violent in their brutality against Negroes. And they feel that someday the Negro is going to wake up and try and do unto them as they have done unto, do unto the whites as the whites have done unto us. We aren't a violent group. We do, uh, we are taught by the Honorable Elijah Muhammad to be, to obey the law, to respect everyone who respects us. We're taught to display courtesy, to be polite. But we're also taught that at any time, anyone in any way uh, inflicts or seeks to inflict violence upon us. We are within our religious rights to retaliate in self-defense to the maximum degree of our ability. We never initiate any violence upon anyone. But if anyone attacks us, we reserve the right to defend ourselves. And the crazy thing about that is, I think that's the only thing that, you know, the racist, white supremacist person will have on the Muslim, the black Muslims, is that they... And, and similar to the Black Panthers, when when people at that time, when when our people, when black people in America were openly saying, I'm going to defend myself. The white supremacists in America would say, oh, you you hate white people. Oh, you're violent. Just because just the just the pronouncement of I'm going to defend myself was to the white supremacists. They took that as, oh, well, this means war. <laughs> just the just the simple fact that you are going to defend yourself. Now, if they defend themselves in any type of way, they don't see that as violent. But if we just say we're going to defend ourselves, 
they took that as a war cry. So to accuse us of, of being violent is like accusing a man who is being lynched, who is being hung on a tree, uh, simply because he struggles vigorously against his lyncher. The victim is accused of violence, mm. but the lyncher is never accused of violence. And I only point this out because the various racist groups that are set up in this country by whites and who have actually practiced violence against blacks for mm. 400 years are never associated or identified or made synonymous with the term violence. But whites speak of Muslims almost synonymously with violence. Whenever Muslims are mentioned by them, violence is brought up. But, not, but it's not connected with any other group. This is a sort of a propaganda mm. tactic or what I would call psychological warfare mm -hmm. to uh, in some way make uh, the image of the Muslims in this country be a violent image rather than a religious image. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'd like to ask a question in that regard. What's interesting is that... Uh and this is now speaking the moderator, the professor, uh, the Anglo-Saxon individual, John Leggett members of the Nation of Islam have not used violence even when uh, black Americans were attacked. Uh, how do you account for this? D does this in any way contradict uh, some of the basic premises of your movement? I don't know how you mean. Well, you try to get them. You maintain, for example, that, that you will not or that you should not use violence unless you are attacked by the white man. Mm. And I think we can note in the last several years, certainly, dozens and dozens and dozens of instances in which Negroes have been uh, attacked, uh, killed in some instances. You mean in these demonstrations? These demonstrations and, and the bombings, for example, recently in Birmingham where they killed four little Negro girls. And what interests me is the fact is, is that the Nation of Islam has not done anything to retaliate. I think you you interested that the Nation of Islam hasn't done nothing to retaliate, but you how interested are you in the government and the police and all these other people that are doing these things that are committing these murders and all this abuse and all these atrocities that are going on towards black people? Where's that energy at? And that's that was the frustration of Malcolm X and the black Muslims, the Nation of Islam and the overall frustration of black folks in America. So out of the 50s and 60s, all that stuff was happening and there was no justice. But then, look, I, I ain't gonna go, I'm gonna let Malcolm, I'm gonna let Malcolm get it. He got it, he got it. You should be happy. Uh, <laughs> but, no, that, no, 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 your lack of action no. contradict any no. of your basic principles. I'll explain it. You should be happy John. that Muslims who follow the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, number one, don't believe in any form of integration and, who be and, and believe that every mention of the word integration by whites, whether it be from the mouth of Kennedy on down to the mouth of the lowest, raggediest white liberal in the street who is beatnik-like involving himself in these integration efforts. If we believed in it, we would integrate and we would fight anybody who got in our way 
or made any effort whatsoever to stop us from integrating. Mm -hmm. If we really believe that the law of the land, the Supreme Court, and other so-called judicial bodies were for real uh, when they talked about integration, we would integrate. And, and to be clear, when he's saying he don't believe in, they don't believe in integration, and and all these demonstrations that you know John Leggett was referring to, he's talking about like sit-ins, um, marches, protests. Um, those are the demonstrations typically led by Martin Luther King, and um, they were tr they were going to white establishments, going to white businesses, going to restaurants, sitting in trying to force, you know, the white supremacist business owners to serve them. And then, if you, I don't know if you guys have ever seen it, but we've seen it back in school. Some schools don't show it anymore, but, um, or you might see it on OPB, some documentary where they're pouring milkshakes on their head and, you know, putting pies in their face and all that type of stuff. And so, and then there, there will be violence that would ensue thereafter. And so that's what he's, that's what they're discussing is, those instances and the white dude is trying to pin on the nation of Islam that they're not sticking up for their people. And Malcolm is telling them why they're not stepping in on these situations in particular. And knowing that the law was on our side and any effort we made to demonstrate toward integration, why we would know the law should be on our side. Uh, if it's the law of the land, if it is the law of the land, then the demonstrators are within the law. And the uh, uh, discriminators are against the law. Mm -hmm. But to show you the hypocrisy of the law, when Negroes demonstrate for integration, instead of uh, arresting the discriminators, the law arrests the demonstrators. Mm. So this is a foolish move on the part of Negroes. Mm. And when you foolishly get yourself involved with a, uh, an enemy, then whatever comes upon you, that's your business. Now. That's very profound what he said, but also very practical. That's one of the reasons why I don't do, I don't participate, me personally, this is my personal decision, I do not participate in any marches um, in the streets, any protests. Um, I will never discourage anyone individually because it comes down to your conviction. But the way that I see it, just to, just because of, the way that history has played out is that I'm setting myself up to be attacked because I know that me, let's say like here in Portland, Oregon, right? We have the, uh, the proud boys and a few other white supremacist groups or the, the Patriot prayer rally. We have that every summer. And sometimes they come back, um, and do, they, they might do two demonstrations per year, but at least one, demonstration downtown and then you have your anti you know patriot prayer rally people the antifa just people that are standing in love against hate you know so to speak and so you know people would would ask me to come down or invite me to come out and and it's just like yo i already know how that's going in like history has already shown me as a black man in america I'm going to, there's a much higher probability that I will get gaffled up by the police, get arrested just for standing against the people that are provoking the violence because I don't have the complexion for the protection. 
you know? And so, like, it's it's almost foolish. Like, I couldn't be mad at the outcome if I knew th- what the outcome was probably going to turn out. You know, like I, I, pro- I, I pretty much know how this could turn out. And it's typically 9.7 times out of 10 not going to turn out in my favor. So why even put myself in harm's way? And I think that's the sentiment that Malcolm was giving them at this time. As Muslims, we believe that separation is the best way and the only sensible way, not integration. And on, But on the other hand, when we see our people being brutalized by white bigots, white racists, uh, we think that they are foolish to allow themselves to be beaten and brutalized and do nothing whatsoever to protect themselves. They are- That's cold. That's cold. That's what happens. But like, just speaking bluntly and honestly, I mean, how else, how else can you frame that? It does seem foolish, right? If you know the outcome. But then again, there were, there was progress that was made. Um, but the value of the progress, we're still evaluating that, right? They are foolish. They, if they should have the right to, de- to defend themselves against any attack made against them by anyone. If a dog is biting a black man, the black man should kill the dog. Whether the, d- the dog is a police dog, a hound dog, or any kind of dog. If a dog is sick on a black man, when that black man is doing nothing but trying to uh, take advantage of what the government says is supposed to be his, then that black man should kill that dog or any two-legged dog who sicks the dog on it. Mm. Should other black men help that particular person who was attacked? <laughs> I think you'll find, sir, that there will come a time when black people wake up and become intellectually independent enough to think for themselves, as other humans are intellectually independent enough to think for themselves, then the black man will think like a black man. And he will feel for other black people. And this new thinking and feeling will cause black people to stick together. And then at that point, you'll have a situation where when you attack one black man, you are attacking all black men. And this type of black thinking will cause all black people to stick together. And this type of thinking also will bring an end to the brutality inflicted upon black people by white people. And it is the only thing that will bring an end to it. No federal court, state court, or city court will bring an end to it. It's something that the black man has to bring an end to himself. Mm. That's a revolution of the mind right there. And it's almost like uh, the black nationalism that they were trying to instill and trying to create at that time. Um, As we know, 50 plus, almost 60 years later, that day hasn't come. It didn't. They thought it was going to come. They were hoping it was going to come soon. It never did. Um, And one day, we'll talk about why it never did. 
but that but that revolution of the mind that's where it starts that's where that's where the change starts when there's like a paradigm shift among people and they all galvanize under one central idea and they have one code that they that they abide by and they defend that ideal that code with their life Minister Malcolm, let me, on the basis of your two remarks, ask uh, a, a double-pronged question. One, is it then your assertion that the laws res with respect to how Negroes are supposed to have equal opportunity and equal rights in this country are not meaningful or believed by whites? And secondly, what is then is your opinion and attitude toward the civil rights movement in general, and particularly uh, the Reverend Martin Luther King and his philosophy of nonviolent direct action. If uh, the white people really passed meaningful laws, it would not be necessary to pass any more laws. Mm, mm, mm. Let's run that back. Let's run that back particularly uh, the Reverend Martin Luther King and his philosophy of nonviolent direct action. If uh, the white people really passed meaningful laws, it would not be necessary to pass any more laws. Mm -hmm. There are already enough laws on the law books to protect an American citizen. Hmm. You only need uh, additional laws when you're dealing with someone who is not regarded as an American citizen. But it's funny. Um, I was talking to my guy Cleo one day. And, you know, we were talking about the struggles. I was talking about the struggles of black people in America and racism and how messed up it is. This is like probably a year ago. Um, and he was like, well, brother, do you think you're a citizen? I was like, what you mean? He's like, are you a citizen of the United States of America? I said, like, of course I'm a citizen. And he just started laughing. I was like, what, so what you, what you trying to tell me? I'm not a citizen? He's like, I can show you. See, we don't, we don't have time for that, my brother. Well, he don't talk like that all the way. But Cleo, you know, I love you. But, um, but yeah, like he, but he never went into it. And, and, and I wasn't trying to get into it because we were talking about a little bit of racism, a lot more of like religion, because me and him talk about religion a lot. Um, and so I didn't want to get into it. But over time, I have begin I've, I've, I began to understand what he was saying. Um, and Malcolm is touching on that right now. The whites are so hypocritical. They don't want to admit that this black man is not a citizen. Uh, so they classify him as a, a second class citizen. To, uh, to get around uh, making him a real citizen. If he was a real citizen, you'd need no more laws. You'd need no civil rights legislation. Uh, civil rights, uh, when you have civil rights, you have citizenship. It's automatic. White people don't need laws to protect their citizenship because they're citizens. But they, want, they, uh, they don't want to tell us we're not citizens. And at the same time, they don't want to pass laws that are meaningful enough to protect us as if we were citizens. And mm. the Supreme Court desegregation decision is the best example I know. That's a law from the Supreme Court. Hmm. Ten years have gone by. 
No, no desegregated schools. Hmm. It hasn't been implemented beyond, I think, 9% in 10 years. So this just shows you the hypocrisy of the American white man. They talk out of both sides of their mouth. And uh, for this reason, we who are Muslims, that is, who believe in the religion of Islam, who believe in God, we don't believe that black people will ever get any laws, get any problem with laws being passed or uh, new persons being put in office, uh, white liberals being put in office. There is nothing that the white man will ever do to bring about uh, true, sincere uh, citizenship or civil rights recognition for black people in this country. Mm. Nothing will they ever do. They will always talk it, but they won't practice it. And uh, with the Supreme Court, if the NAACP can tell me that they want a desegregation decision for me uh, 10 years ago, but yet the schools haven't been desegregated, as I say, this is a victory with no victory. Uh, it's a victory that you can talk about, but it's a victory you can't show me. So if you represent the NAACP and you are telling me about this great victory you won for me, when I look at you, I have to uh, conclude that either you have been duped yourself or else you are trying to dupe me. And in most instance, instances where the civil rights struggle is involved, there is no civil rights leader can point to me one concrete gain, practical gain, that black people have made in the civil rights field in this country, not only during the past 10 years, but during the past 100 years. Now, the other part was... Mm, mm, mm. And now I'm thinking about the gains that we've made from the 60s until now. I don't know if any of y'all have watched the documentary, Teach Us All. Um, it's on Netflix. Watch it, Teach Us All. And it talks about um, how, you know, black children and, and Latino children or Hispanic children um, are not taught the same. They're not treated the same in schools. They don't have Typically, white teachers don't have the same expectations for the for those children and just kind of pass them along. And it talks about how schools now in the past, you know, I think this I think that documentary was shot in like 2017 ish, 2018, maybe um, or maybe 2016. But it was it, it was they put it out in 2018. But. Schools are more segregated now than what they were back in like the 60s and 70s. Like 40, 50 years after or 50 plus years after, um, was it the Little Rock? Is it the Little Rock 9 or something like that? I don't know. Now, Central Park 5. No, Little Rock. Y'all know what I'm talking about. The high school in, in Arkansas and Little Rock, where they that was the first one where they let black people in and it was a big deal and they got they had to get police escorts, all that type of stuff. So since then, till now, there was a period where it was desegregated and a little bit more integrated than not. And now there's even more desegregate there's even more segregation now in schools than there were back in the seventies. So we got to be honest about the progress that we've made. A lot of things have been symbolic. There have been a lot of changes and, and you know, you, you get a black president as symbolic of change. 
But we got to look at the numbers and we got to be honest about how much constructive change has happened since Martin and Malcolm was fighting for this. Was uh, with respect to Mr. King and the nonviolent direct action. Well, I will let uh, uh, Jimmy Baldwin and John Killens and Lou Lomax, the writers, answer that. Uh, uh, speaking right after these, th this church was bombed in Birmingham, Christian church was bombed in Birmingham by Christians too, mind you. And these four little girls were murdered. Uh, John Killens and James Baldwin and uh, Lomax and the Negro writers and actors had a meeting at the town hall in New York. And Killen pointed out concerning these murders of these little girls said, the killings had raised doubts about the intelligence of the nonviolent, uh, of nonviolence in the civil rights struggle. He went on to declare that he could no longer be asked to love those who persecuted and killed Negroes. He also, uh, and the writer, uh, Mr. Handler, who's, who's uh, describing this said that Killens, it was not clear concerning Killens' remarks to his audience that he was breaking with the, it was clear rather, to his audience that he was breaking with the doctrine of the Reverend Martin Luther King's uh, uh, philosophy that as Christians, Negroes should love their fellow man in a truly religious sense. Now, James Baldwin, speaking on that same platform said, and I was present, during this entire affair, asserted that the American people shared a collective guilt for the persecution of Negroes, much as Germans did because of their silence during the Nazi persecution. He denounced President Kennedy for what he termed Kennedy's lack of passion in the civil rights struggle. Mr. Baldwin said that there could no longer be a Republican party for the Negro people as long as it listed a Barry Goldwater, nor a Democratic party for the Negro people with a Senator Eastland on its roster. He asserted, that the federal government acted swiftly and energetically, that unless the federal government acted swiftly and energetically, future slaughter would make Birmingham look like a dress rehearsal. I, and now, how, what do I think about uh, King's uh, attitude? King's right-hand man, uh, Wyatt Walker, at King's convention, according to the New York Times on September the 26th, said, we ha quote, we have been duped, meaning these persons involved in the civil rights struggle of which King is the symbolic leader. His right-hand man says, and I quote, we have been duped or have duped ourselves into believing that the chains have been broken when in truth we have only been chained more securely. Half freedom has in many instances been worse than no freedom at all. Why, don't ask me what I think about their struggle. I can tell you what they think about their struggle. And, have, and they are, are, are pointing out that it is becoming more difficult every day uh, for the civil rights leaders to keep the masses of black people uh, nonviolent and uh, long-suffering and patient and keep them from becoming disenchanted. Hope that answers your question. Mm, hope that answers your question. My goodness, that's a lot to take in. That's a whole lot to take in. The main thing, uh, one, two, two things that stuck out to me. When he talked about, um, you know, the church being bombed, a Christian church, bombed by Christians that can easily we can easily brush over that or just sweep over that and there was a lot there was a lot of meat to that last comment but for me if y'all know me if you've been listening you know about me and my journey uh, my story of 
growing up in the church, being Christian my whole life, really embracing the faith. And then over the past four or five years, really questioning the faith and the past really two, three years um, going in and challenging others as I challenged myself and being open to the consequence and not relying on confirmation bias, but just taking in the information and and dealing with reality and not what <laughs> not what I want to happen, you know, not the outcome that I'm looking for, just allowing the outcome to come naturally. And when I did that, I realized that I I can't rock with Christianity fully because there's way, way too many flaws. And the logical conclusion of Christianity is that I I am brothers and sisters in Christ with a lot of folks that despise me and my people. To me, that's not family. That's not how family works. Um, and it doesn't and it doesn't have to like I obviously you're not born into Christianity. That's something that you choose to do. And so I, that means I'm choosing to be family with these white supremacists at that that love Trump and that that put whiteness on a pedestal and anything that is opposed to whatever they think and whatever they believe, they're going to trample on it and, and they're not going to acknowledge it. And so when the killings of Mike Brown and Tamir Rice and. Philando Castile, Alden Sterling, all that Sandra Bland, all that stuff goes down and you see people's true colors and I'm seeing it in the church. I'm like, yo, y'all Christians? If y'all Christians, you should be as upset and angry as we are, those that are black that, that are in the church and we're going through all this turmoil and all this trauma and y'all not y'all not there. Y'all don't even believe that the officers is wrong. Y'all don't y'all don't believe that these young boys they're boys. You don't believe in their innocence. You presume their guilt. And yeah, you're my brother. You're my sister in Christ. Nah. And so he was talking about a Christian church that was bombed by Christians. And if we if we be honest and take time to study history, the KKK, a lot of those Ku Klux Klan and even non KKK white supremacists, that were lynching and killing and, and slave owner, all that. They're all Christians. So what does that say about the faith? And what does that say about this so-called um, Holy Spirit that we all have, that we all share in common? Nah, we don't. There's a lot of things that we don't have in common. And if it, and there's the way that the the way the theory, the theology. What's on paper doesn't match what actually happens in real life. And time after time after time, it shows that white people, when they embrace Christianity, they don't they don't live by those tenets. They pick and choose what they want. And they use what serves them. But I noticed that black Christianity we served it <laughs> like we serve God. Like we've been serving. We've been as been as been in a subservient position for quite some time. So we know what it is to serve. 
And so we honestly and earnestly like serve God and we worship. Like you go to a white church, they don't really worship. They just, they barely sing. They barely clap. They don't have no enthusiasm. But they, but they, my brother and sister, no, that we ain't the same. And, it, and it's not operating the same. If you just, be, and you just got to be honest, it's not the same. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it is not the same. We are not the same. And just, and beyond the worship styles, that's more ticky tack. But what are the consequences of this faith? What are the consequences of this person who says they're filled with the Holy Spirit and this person that, feel, that says that they're filled with the Holy Spirit? Um, person A is totally okay with the killing, the murder, and the trauma that has been inflicted on black people ever since we've been coming in contact with each other for the past 500 years or even beyond that. And they don't want to fix it. They don't want to reconcile all those principles that are in the Bible. and the They don't want to touch on that. Now, Malcolm wasn't going there. That's just me. That's how I feel about it. Christian church being bombed by Christians. So now it ain't about the faith. It's about we picking sides based upon race. We picking sides based upon heritage, not not based upon your religion, your so-called faith. And, and MLK, he it's not like he didn't acknowledge that. And that's why I love MLK. MLK kept it. He kept it funky. If you read his letter from a Birmingham jail that he wrote when he was in um, when he was in jail in Birmingham, he talked about some of the most disappointing people were his whether it was the white moderate person like that that nice gentle soft spoken not really taking a side type so called brother or sister in Christ you think they're on your, on your side but they don't do anything they just sit back and tell you to wait they tell you man just t- just take your time you, you you're doing too much you're making too much noise it'll it'll happen eventually your freedom will come eventually your your rights will come eventually. But even Malcolm recognized, yo, we ain't, I ain't got time for that. And I I need you to stay away from me. Stay far away from me. Well, now there's a new party uh, which has started on the East Coast called the Freedom Now Party, an all-black organization. Would you comment upon this and also upon the possibility that the nation of Islam might begin to turn some of its attention to the political arena in view of the fact that it is in the political arena that uh, Negroes have not been able to in any way get justice as has been pointed out in your previous statement. I'm not familiar with the Freedom Now party. I'm not too familiar with politics, period, only that in the sense that uh, white politicians have usually been very hypocritical. Uh, where the so-called Negroes are concerned. That's another reason why I love Malcolm. Like, if he don't know, he don't know. And every time I've heard him speak, he's only speaking on what he knows, and he's only speaking on the consequences of certain situations and certain actions, not what he thinks should happen, not what he interprets based upon based upon also his expectations, but what has happened? And that's, and that's what he's talking. He's talking facts. Uh, so I'm a bit disenchanted 
uh, with politicians and politics. The Honorable Elijah Muhammad is a religious man, and his teaching is religious, and his solutions are religious. Uh, the Freedom Now Party, from what I understand, is headed by a man named, a lawyer named Conrad Lynn. Mm -hmm. I know him, <coughs> probably means well. Uh, uh, before passing an opinion on what it is he's trying to do, I would like to uh, analyze it and see who's subsidizing him, see who his friends are, especially who his white friends are. Mm. Uh, and after uh, a careful analysis, if I could conclude that uh, there was no uh, white support, I would be inclined to have confidence in it. Before passing opinion, man, if, if, if I could just... <sighs> I know I'm extremely guilty of that. Passing an opinion before I've taken in all the information. If we didn't learn nothing from this, let's learn that. Before passing an opinion, let's take in all the information, take in all the factors, and then we can assess and potentially give a sound opinion. But if I saw him leaning too heavily upon his white liberal friends for support, then I'd be suspicious of that, too. The Muslims, in my opinion, uh, represent an all-black party. Uh, and the Honorable Elijah Muhammad pointed out at uh, before 10,000 in Philadelphia on uh, September the 29th uh, at a rally that we were having that in 1964, the black people should band together and do something about electing, uh, selecting and electing uh, representatives, black representatives, politically. Uh, who have the uh, rights and the, um, the best interests of the black people at heart, and that we should also unite together and sweep out of office all of the black political puppets who are used by the white power structure to continue white supremacy uh, in our communities. In that regard... Powerful. Now, one thing I, I meant to say, I meant to touch on, I said there were two things that bothered me, and I went off on... You know, the Christian girls being killed by Christians. And uh, the other thing that bothered me, because uh, I want to leave y'all hanging. And, yeah. So the other thing that bothered me was, um, you know, just the, you know, one of the Bible verses says, love thy enemies. Um, and I think one of the main scriptures is like Romans chapter 12. I forgot what verse, whatever. But it talks about loving their enemies and. You know, if your enemy is thirsty, give him a drink. And if he's something, if he's cold, give him a blanket. And by doing so, you will heap coals of fire on his head. And that's like one of those Christian things. That's why we, you know, typically black Christians that serve Christianity, that serve God and doesn't allow, honestly, God to serve us or Christianity to serve us. We serve it. Um, we we follow that so closely. And, I, and, and that's why I love MLK, because he was so like genuine like he was really trying to live it out but also the reason why i love malcolm is that you know he he was genuine as well but he was more of an analytical he's gonna sit back and just observe the consequences of it and so for me i can't love my enemies like what if i love my enemies then i'm like being i'm almost a that's like stockholm syndrome you know what I mean? Like we know the definition of Stockholm syndrome, but then there's a, a Bible verse that says, love thy enemies. So like if you're a Christian and you're, and you're aware of both, that's contradictory. And it's, it's not expedient for 
the future of yourself and your children and your grandchildren. If you love your enemies, that means you're going to continue to be persecuted. Your children will be continue will continue to be persecuted. Your your grandchildren and so on and so forth. And so that's one of those things that sticks out to me, you know, as as Malcolm was talking about, you know, the the nonviolent direct action um, tactics of MLK and others and the reason why he didn't rock with it. Would you include um, Congressman Dawson, for example, from Chicago and some of the people who represent him on the Chicago City Council? In which regard? Uh, in, in, the, in the area of acting as a puppet. I don't know what Mr. Muhammad's opinion is of Congressman Dawson. They both live right there in the city of Chicago together. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know what his uh, opinion is of Congressman uh, Dawson. I'm going to run that back. Uh, I'm opinion is from Chicago. white power, um, the best interests of the black people at heart, and that we should also unite together and sweep out of office all of the black political puppets who are used by the white power structure to continue white supremacy mm. uh, in our communities. In that regard, would you include um, Congressman Dawson, for example, from Chicago, and some of the people who represent him on the Chicago City Council? In which regard? Uh, in, in, the, in the area of acting as a puppet. I don't know what Mr. Muhammad's opinion is of Congressman Dawson. They both live right there in the city of Chicago. And if you notice, the man, John Leggett, asked Malcolm directly, and Malcolm answered, I don't know what Mr. Muhammad's opinion is. So one thing we have to also realize is that when Malcolm was speaking, he was he was showing up as a spokesperson for Elijah Muhammad. And so he was typically, even though he was saying, you know, talking as if it was him, he was primarily representing the thoughts and ideals of the Nation of Islam and he was speaking directly for Elijah Muhammad. And that's, that's so honorable of Malcolm to be able to talk like that and be able to also distinguish and differentiate when he's not speaking. But like the general thought and idea is that Malcolm is speaking for Elijah Muhammad at all times. And right now he's going to give his personal opinion. Together. Uh, I don't know what his uh, opinion is of Congress. Opinion is of Congress from Chicago and some of the people who represent him on the Chicago City Council. In which regard? Uh, in, in, the, in the area of acting as a puppet. I don't know what Mr. Muhammad's opinion is of Congressman Dawson. They both live right there in the city of Chicago together. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know what his uh, opinion is of Congressman uh, Dawson. Uh, I'm suspicious of any Negro, be he politician. Uh, be he clergyman or civic leader who is constantly patted on the back by whites. I have a tendency to lead toward the Negro politician who is constantly condemned by the white power structure. Uh, this is my thought pattern. I'm giving you an insight of it. You uh, don't mention Mr. Lynn and saying you'd like to know who his white friends are. Now, I'm wondering if you didn't make a contradictory statement in Muslim terms by using white and friend in the same phrase. That is I to use say, friend in quotes. I see. In other words, if a, if a black man cannot have a white man as a friend. He may have a white man who's friendly, but being friendly and being a friend, I think, are two different things. That's a bar. I think there are many whites who act friendly toward Negroes. A fox acts, acts friendly toward the lamb. Mm. Mm -hmm. And usually the fox is the one who ends up with the lamb chop on his plate. Mm. 
the wolf doesn't act friendly, and therefore the wolf has more difficulty in getting the lamb chopped in his plate. Mm, mm, mm. I'd like to point out, though, that... And I, I, I say that because it is usually the, if you study the structure of the Negro community, mm -hmm. economically, politically, civically, psychologically, and otherwise, it's controlled by the white liberal, mm -hmm. who usually poses as the friend of the Negro, who actually differs from the white conservative in, in the same way that the fox differs from the wolf. Uh, this may be obvious, but liberal means Democrat, conservative means Republican in America. Their appetite is the same. Their motives are the same. It's only their mannerisms and, and methods that differ. Mm -hmm. I would agree that uh, no doubt there have been a large number of, of whites who have posed as liberals and as friends of the Negro and who have time and again betrayed the Negro. Uh, on the other hand, I think one could point to a large number of whites uh, who have struggled for civil rights, Give me for equality, and have got little or nothing out of it, uh, <laughs> other than uh, quite a few bruises. Give me an example. Well, the, the large number of, of white uh, students who have gone into the South, for example, working for SNCC and other organizations. Not working for SNCC or other organizations, but working for the white uh, political machines who benefit by the voting uh, efforts of Negroes. Okay. I'll be mm, mm, mm. Caught him. To be more specific, uh, I would cite Herbert Hill, for example, as, an, <laughs> as, as a kind of person who has uh, championed Negro job rights, for example, uh, in New York City and elsewhere. He has fought the political machine. First time I met Herbert Hill personally was when they were picketing to stop the working on the uh, Harlem Hospital in Harlem. Mm. Negroes for 10 years had to fight the city to get uh, an annex built on the Harlem Hospital. Because in Harlem, we need a hospital more so than anything else. Our people are sick, plus we do a lot of cutting and shooting of each other, mm -hmm. though we profess to be nonviolent. Mm. And uh, Herbert Hill brought his forces out and stopped the work. Nonviolent against who? That's a bar. I don't know if y'all caught that, though we profess to be nonviolent. It's funny because... Malcolm is so slick, man. He's so slick with the words. And it's it sucks that him and and him and, and Malcolm, uh, that the Nation of Islam and the SELC and everybody else that, that um Martin Luther King were involved with, that they couldn't come together. But it was just it was two differing sides, you know, two differing strategies and ideologies. So it's it's very tough. And that's and that's the thing, you know about religion it, I, and I don't know may, I don't know if it's religion is the reason why Martin believed what he believed but it does seem like it you know and so but I think they every, they both had the same goal in mind which was liberating black people in America you know and, and getting us out from underneath you know the boot of white supremacy but um, it, but that that was a shot that was a subtle clever very clean shot of even though we profess to be nonviolent, you know, we actually do a lot of harm to ourselves, and and that's not to say that no one else, no other group doesn't do that, and there's something, you know, uh, rare about it or just outrageous. But it's just let's let's be real. Like y'all want to talk about, we want to say nonviolence, but y'all we're only preaching nonviolence to the white supremacists. But when it comes to ourselves, we're not putting that same energy into it, you know? 
And that's the, the hypocrisy of that of us to do that at that time is is wild. And it's something that has to be has to be noted. On that site, uh, this is the first time I ever saw him. My bad, let's run it back. Uh, Herbert Hill brought his forces out and stopped the working on that site. Uh, this is the first time I ever saw him. Then uh, when work was brought to a halt on a hospital in Harlem, the same Negroes tried to stop the work at the downstate uh, medical center in Brooklyn, which is predominantly white. They, they were out there for three months during the summer, couldn't stop anything. And I never saw Herbert Hill out there one time. Now, whenever something, whenever it takes uh, a stoppage of something that's going to affect the white man, you find the white liberal absent. But it, when it uh, involves something that primarily will affect the best interests of black people and black people only, then that white liberal is present. Herbert Hill is the labor secretary for the NAACP. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, if he was interested in black people, he would prepare a black man with the type of knowledge and understanding of the labor troubles involving black people that would enable uh, a black man to sit in the same position as secretary of labor or labor secretary in the NAACP. I'm suspicious of whites who join Negroes and always have to be in the lead, who always have to be the head, who always have to be at the top in Negro organizations. Mm. Those whites who really have the interest of blacks at heart, let them give some advice to some Negroes and stand on the sideline. But don't join the organization and then get at the head of it and pose as a friend of Negroes. Mm, well, I... Mm, mm. Mm, mm, mm. Malcolm talking that talk, man. Don't y'all just love him? Don't you just love to hear him talk, man? It's just so sad, all of our, all of our heroes, man, all of our warriors got taken out man um and that warrior spirit that that honesty that intellectual integrity it's just been ripped from us not to say that there aren't people to this day that are speaking like this but it's more or less mixed up with business pursuits and, it's, and there's nothing wrong with that and I'm going to pursue my business you know as, as well as the next man however there seems to be a compromise on really speaking truth to power and not getting getting in bed with those power structures to stay afloat uh, financially but I'm gonna I'm gonna stop this one right here we're gonna pick up from where we left off on the next episode once again hit me up on Twitter at SXSNDLS or just search Socks and Sandals Podcast. Hit me on Instagram, Socks and Sandals Podcast. I said that funny, Socks and Sandals Podcast. And uh, yeah, once again, it's where society, culture, history, and religion collide. And we unapologetically discuss our worldviews. This is Emmanuel. This is the Hugh Knows series. Signing off one time. I'll holla at y'all next week. Grace and peace. <laughs>